Hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where women talk, and we talk, and we keep on talking, and there are no men around to tell us to shut up, so that's nice. (laughs) I am Alarn Humphreys-Brooks, and with me, as always, is Karen Peterson. Hello, Karen. Hello. Are are you excited to talk, Karen? I love talking. (laughs) I, I really do. And I think that talking when men are only allowed to listen is one of my favorite things. It's yeah, it's wonderful. So (laughs) the uh, the topic of this week's episode is all men are trash, except for maybe that one guy. Um, (laughs) It's actually actually we're going to talk about uh, uh, women, uh, women, women penned screenplays. Um, that were nominated for and had won Oscars. We're going to talk about three films in particular, but, um, but also just give a general, have a general discussion about, um, the role of female writers in Hollywood because the Oscars are coming up. And in fact, I think this, this will be the last episode that we will release before the Oscars. Correct. Um, and so, so that'll, that'll be interesting. There are of course some women who have been nominated, uh, for writing this year, which we are glad for. Um, but there are also too few women who are being nominated for writing. But before we get into that, Karen, you wanted to talk about a film that has (laughs) nothing to do with anything we are, uh, we're talking about today. And, um, and we felt that maybe it would be a good idea to start with this rather than try to segue, um from rapist mennonites to mm-hmm. uh to this so yeah. karen you want to talk to us about cocaine bear which i will say women talk in cocaine bear oh my so, god it's directed yeah. by a woman too it is directed by a woman it was written by a man but that's Ooh. okay uh <laughs> it happens so um not every movie can be perfect so um but no but no uh cocaine bear it came out last weekend and it was one that I was like, I wanted to talk about it last week. And then I completely forgot when we were um, talking about so many other awesome things. So um, so I just wanted to really quickly mention that this movie lives up to its promise and its premise. It's about a bear on blow that got dumped in the woods and it goes on a rampage and just starts killing a whole bunch of people. And I love it so much. It's really funny. It's... um. It's interesting. I saw a bunch of people complaining that you don't see the cocaine bear enough in cocaine bear. And I'm like, have you ever paid attention in Jaws? How much of Jaws do you see in Jaws? Um, it's really <laughs> about people. And uh, that's kind of what this is, too. It's like this kind of this weird collection of people that all end up in this forest at the same time. And you've got like a park ranger who has a crush on on one of the like game uh, warden people and um that's margo martindale by the way she's hilarious uh you've got a <laughs> what? mom what yeah. you mean a steve character actress margo martindale 
Yep, I sure do. Oh um, my god. Okay, I have to go see it now. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Carrie Russell plays a mom whose daughter, Brooklyn Prince, um, has taken off because she wants to go up to this waterfall and she skipped school and so she goes to get her daughter and friend, but you know, they they're they're hiding from this bear and then there's like some hikers that are just really sweet people and then there are the criminals who were responsible for the cocaine getting dumped in the woods in the first place and they're trying to get it back and um that is you know that group is uh under the leadership of ray liotta r.i.p ray liotta so anyway it's just like such a funny collection of people and it's such a funny movie and one of the things that i love about it is that um because it's this you know i don't we've talked before about female directors and how there's just this different type of empathy that they bring to stories like this and i think that um in some very interesting and surprising ways elizabeth banks does that especially with this bear and um i don't want to give anything away i want people to just go into it unspoiled and just getting to enjoy (laughs) the chaos of this movie which is only 90 minutes and it really needed to not be longer than that it's perfect use of time and uh it's just a lot of fun i highly recommend it well i for one cannot wait to see cocaine bear i've heard (laughs) you know when i I remember when they were initially talking about this film and everyone was like are you kidding me you know and (laughs) and at the same time it's like well if it's no if it like goes hard into its subject right that Mm -hmm. it's not it doesn't take itself too seriously but it also maybe if it doesn't try to be too ridiculous yeah and hits that right balance it could be a lot of fun and and from everything that i've heard and from what you're saying it's it sounds like that it, it manages to do exactly that yep um because like it's a it's a ridiculous premise <laughs> to begin right. with it's 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 loosely based on a true story the true story being that some uh like a, a drug dealer dropped some cocaine in the woods and a bear ate it but they don't have anything like record of the bear going on a rampage and killing anybody (laughs) it died pretty quickly um but that's what it's based on so and i do i do already i haven't even seen the movie and i already want cocaine bear versus predator Mm -hmm. so so i think like you know people were talking about when prey came out um but what that was last year right yeah uh and everybody's talking about, oh, Predator needs to like like show up in all these different places. Just like what better like <laughs> the world's greatest predator, cocaine bear, versus predator. <laughs> oh my god. It practically writes itself. It's it's just like it's it's not even difficult. <laughs> like, you know, you could just you could hammer that one out in an afternoon. It's that would be pretty great. Yes. <laughs> So you recommend Cocaine Bear and I do. Um and I want to see Cocaine Bear. So yes, yay, Cocaine Bear. Woohoo. Um <laughs> I have no <laughs> idea how to segue. Uh I, I don't I don't I don't think that we do. I think we just <laughs> say, okay, we're changing topics abruptly now. We are now going to change topics to female screenwriters and... that will not get nominated for writing Cocaine Bear because it was written by me. <laughs> there you go. And, uh, and, and yeah, and so women actually getting nominated for, for screenplays, for original screenplays, adaptive screenplays, et cetera. And, um, and then also actually getting awards for it, winning Oscars for it. And 
this is one of those things like we talked about this, I think, last year a little bit when we were talking about the places that women tend to get nominated in the Academy Awards. Um, and one of the things that we talked about was the fact that, you know, writing has very often been treated as a very female pursuit. So particularly in the early years. Um, and you would imagine that women would get nominated a lot for things like writing, less so for directing, right? Which is which has been so dominated by male directors, at least since the the kind of beginning of the studio system. Um, and and women have been nominated and have been awarded for, you know, really ever since the beginning of the Academy Awards. Um, the first the first woman to win an Academy Award for writing um, was, of course, Frances Marion for The Big House. Yep, uh, which we've talked about that. We've talked about Mar- Francis Marion. Yeah, and and so it's and it is a fantastic film. And it was the um, was it the second Academy Awards? I think third, mm-hmm. third. Um, and and she gets nominated and wins a number of times. She she wins. Uh, she also wins for the Champ. She gets nominated a couple more times throughout the nineteen thirties. Um, she also was the first person, not just first woman, but the first person to win a second Oscar. That's remarkable. Mm-hmm. And she did it back to back. So, um, But one of the things that uh, you begin to notice as, as time goes on, and first of all, um, one of the things that we have to say is that how screenplays are defined, how stories are defined has changed over the course of Hollywood history. And so you see, particularly in the 1930s and 40s, a lot of people being a lot of women being nominated in combination with uh, other female screenwriters and uh, male screenwriters. And they're also being nominated for things like original story. They're being nominated Mm -hmm. for screenplay. They're being nominated for adaptations. So there's a little bit of a muddling of terms that's going on a little uh, um, throughout the 1930s and 40s that makes it a, a more confusing when you're actually talking about, you know, are women winning or being nominated for uh, screenplays? And as you pointed out uh, before we started recording, Karen, there this was the time of the writer's rooms where you had a lot of people working on the same script. Mm-hmm. Um, even more so, and you still have that today, but even more so than today, where you get a lot of people who are being credited on them. So someone who's coming up with the story, someone else who's writing the dialogue, um, people who are writing action, things like that. And so you've got a lot of women who are kind of mixed into all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And um, when you look at, because we have a pretty, I mean, I have a list of every, I think that this is complete there. It's possible that I've missed one or two somewhere in there, but every uh, script that has been nominated that was written or co-written by a woman and uh, in all of Oscar history right up till today, where we're going to find out if we have another uh, female winner. But um, it's 144 is the total out of thousands of, of uh, well, many hundreds of movies. I'm not sure. There's been over 4,000 total nominees, but that includes short films and stuff. And those tend to not be nominated. But um, anyway, uh, but one of the things that, I was thinking about when I was revisiting this list this week and seeing, you know, thinking about the writer's room aspect and stuff. And um, I was remembering just how frustrating it was. And we talked about this at length. I don't want to necessarily spend a lot of time on this, but how frustrating it was once again, when we were watching the movie Mink that just came out, what, two years ago. And 
you have like a whole writer's room full of men. They never mention any female writers. And it's like you look at all these these awards categories from the 30s, 40s, 50s. And there's every year, let's see, 1935, there's not, there's zero. But uh, basically every year from 1928 to 1956, there's at least one woman in the nominees for screenwriting. At least one every year. And most of the time, there's at least two or three. So it's just one of those things that's so frustrating yeah. to see movies made now that are erasing that history. Yeah, and, and you think about it. So for every like one woman who is being nominated, this and these are nominations. Right. right. So right. think about how many women are working on scripts. And in fact, mm -hmm. films from that period. Show women in the room. <laughs> exactly. Like you see what you see women, not just as typists, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think that that and that's sort of what Mank implies um is that oh women were there to you know type things i was just like no they were actually writing they were writing things i mean watch the movie sunset boulevard that's an entire exactly. plot point <laughs> exactly yeah like there there's a um uh there's a joan crawford film that i'm blanking on the title now but she, her whole role is she is a screenwriter in like she's a freelance screenwriter she writes screenplays mm -hmm. um and this and i get it this it's the 1950s so the 50s films are acknowledging this and right. are very clear about the fact that women are participating in writing screenplays and in the film production process. And then we've got, you know, basically later films that are essentially rewriting that. Um, yeah, it's it's offensive. And I think that is something we really need to note that for every, you know, one woman who is nominated for an Academy Award, there are literally hundreds who have written screenplays mm -hmm. um, either by themselves or with with other writers, with other women, um, etc. And so. It's it's really important to really acknowledge that at the same time to note how often women are frozen out of certain things. Right. Um, and so one of the things you do have to point out is that from about 1955 to 1993, women are consistently nominated for screenplays. Um, some of them fantastic films, some of them Academy Award winning films, but the screenplays themselves are not being um, are not being rewarded. And so you've got this massive gap of almost 40 years in which women are not winning academy awards for screenplays and it's hard you know we talk we've talked a lot about you know the the studio system classical hollywood the shift that went on but one of the troubling things about this is that this is exactly the period where the studio system you know broke apart completely uh hollywood as kind of an entity went through a lot of of shifts and changes and this was the point at which women began to be frozen out more. And it seems very ahistorical. It seems like that's not what should be happening. The world, you know, things are opening up. There should be more women who are getting nominated and, and, and more women who are winning. And there isn't, not until 1993. Right. Yeah. And if you look at the totals for every year, the, the highest year of female nominees ever was 1991. And we've never come back to that. And um, and ever since then, there have been a couple of times where it's been two or three, a couple of years where it's been four, but mostly it's been one or there have been entire years where none, nobody was. So mm -hmm. it's it's yeah, it's not it's not getting better. Like we're 
kind of in this time where maybe we're starting to see an upswing, but we're not sure. Um, there's definitely more women getting attention for writing than there were, you know, back a few years ago, but that's not translating into awards. And, well, and one, one of the next big gaps is from 2007 when uh, Juno won Best Screenplay mm-hmm. to 2020. Right. When Emerald Fennel won for Promising Young Woman. And that's yeah. a huge, that, that's again, that's not as big of a gap as between 1955 and 1993, but still that is a big gap. And women are getting nominated, right? Mm-hmm. You're talking about films like Lady Bird, um, The Shape of Water, Can You Ever Forgive Me, Little Women, um 1917 Nomadland but it's it's not until Promising Young Woman that you get a, a woman winning again and then women won back to back um right. Emerald Fennel won for Promising Young Woman and uh Sean Hader for Coda yeah well and the thing is too I mean you only have to go back to t- 2014 to find a year where there weren't any women nominated but there's never been a year where a a writing category was all women Mm -hmm. and people would even if that happened people would like freak out about it and be like oh whoa hollywood blah 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 but no one complains when it's a category where women are shut out well people complain those same people do not complain when women are (laughs) shut out (laughs) of a category (laughs) well but but even i mean i'm sorry so even some of the most progressive people are like well but but do all of these women really deserve to be nominated like you definitely get that from people who consider themselves progressive Mm -hmm. and and uh, and do not see honestly i think do not see the sexism in their own statements and and so it isn't just you know the maga crazies necessarily it's it it isn't just the people who are like reactionary it's people who would consider themselves to be very forward thinking Mm -hmm. um and and that's something that really needs to be addressed and we've talked about it so much that you know maleness really continues to be the default particularly white maleness um and and that and it remains the default in um in not in the academy awards and in nominations and in writing etc so it's it's upsetting at the same time we are seeing more um kind of maybe a little bit more of a movement forward but like you say we're gonna have to wait and see what happens within the next couple of years because are we going to have yet another gap of 10 or 15 or 20 years before women are are actually winning academy awards for this right yeah i would hope not but one does not know yeah i yeah that's the thing it's, it really is a wait and see so so, so to to the the place that we want to start is in fact in 1993 um when Jane Campion won for her original screenplay for The Piano. And she was accompanied in nominations by um, Ruth Prower, I'm going to mispronounce her name, Javala for Remains of the Day and Nora Ephron um, for Sleepless in Seattle. So, you know, an interesting kind of grouping right there, actually. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think one of the interesting things throughout the, the three films that we're going to talk about is a sort of period piece element uh, to all three of them, one of them in a slightly different way. But so let's start with the piano. Um, so the piano is a 1993 film and it is a period, it, it is built as an erotic period drama. And I, <laughs> I find it interesting, like how they, how, how you categorize films like this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it was written and directed by Jane Campion and stars uh, Holly Hunter as a, a young woman with um, with a daughter played by Anna Paquin, uh, who 
is essentially given in marriage to um, Sam Neill uh, and immigrates to New Zealand and her, uh, what, what was her name? Ada. Um, and so Ada's issue, Ada's kind of interest, one of the interesting elements of Ada's character is that she's mute and she seems to be mute by choice. Yeah. She simply stopped talking when she was six years old. And she and, doesn't even know why. She says in, in like a yeah. voiceover. And so her muteness then carries through throughout the rest of the film. And the way that she expresses herself primarily, she she expresses herself through sign language, but very much so through the music that she plays on her piano, which she brings with her to New Zealand. Um, while she's there, she meets um, George Baines, played by Harvey Keitel, who, with whom she kind of develops this sort of odd, it's a very odd relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of it is being filtered through the through music and through the expression of the piano and the emotional and sexual connection that they develop with each other as a result of that. It is, it's a fascinating film. It's a very odd film in a lot of ways because you've got all of these elements that are not typical as it were, right? So, so this woman who is not is like I say, mute by choice. She doesn't speak. She chooses not to speak. She, at some point, she is like not able to express herself via speech in the way that she can express herself with her hands and with her music. Um, this was actually the first time I ever saw this film. And I, th- I thought that I'd seen it and then realized that I'd actually seen a completely different movie <laughs> that had nothing to do with this. Um but it's also I had piano in the title. It's easy to piano, <laughs> like you know, it's kind of strange women doing things. Like, <laughs> um, but so so this is both written and directed by Jane Campion, and is is a it's a really fascinating film. It's very slow. It's very methodical, and I think that if we if you've seen any Jane Campion films, you kind of know what to expect from this. Um, Holly Hunter, you know, like, like I said, she doesn't speak except for briefly at the beginning um, in a voiceover and then again at the end in a voiceover. And so, so much of her expression is, is through the piano and through her hands, but she's also very expressionless in a lot of ways. She doesn't, people talk to her and ask her things and she, she not only doesn't respond verbally, she doesn't respond in any way, right? She, her face doesn't change. And it's, it's this really interesting kind of, It's difficult to know exactly what to make of it, but one of the things that began developing for me as I was watching the film is that it's a way of denying other people an access to her emotions Um, and, and, and access to any explanation for who she is. And they have to find a different way to understand her and a different way to engage with her, which is really interesting when you're talking about a female character and particularly female character, um, in the 19th century, who is literally, you know, given away by her father to this man that she's never met. Um, and sold by her father. Yeah, and sent across the world with her daughter um, to this completely random country that she's never been to, doesn't understand, um, and and is is definitely represented as being at this time period, at least, and in, and in the area of New Zealand, very kind of... Um, it's it's wilderness right it's Mm -hmm. not the sort it's not the sort of place where you should be wearing hooped skirts right (laughs) um so it's a it's a really interesting film so what are what are your thoughts on this to begin with karen so i've seen this multiple times and 
I have a greater appreciation for the film each time I watch it. The first time I saw it, I was just like, I don't really like this movie. Um, And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that there were just too many other voices in my head. You know, like I knew what other people thought of it. And so when I was watching it and I also knew that weird erotic uh, romance description, which I do not feel like this movie is that at all. (laughs) I think that's a that's a very 90s uh code for you're gonna see some d um but uh <laughs> they have sex <laughs> they have the sex yes um and so so i went into it with different expectations of what it was it was also the first jane campion film i ever saw and so i just didn't know what i was what i was in for so the first time i watched it, i really didn't like it but then i revisited it a couple of years ago for uh, something else. And I was just like, okay, I still don't necessarily love this movie, but I I understand better what she's doing. I rewatched it again yesterday to prep for this episode. And I was just like, huh, I think I actually really like this movie. I think it's really good. Um, And I think it's because I was picking up on things that I'm now totally distanced from other people's opinions on it. And um, I was I was just looking at things in a different way and really like honing in more on what is it that Campion is trying to say with this story. Um, And so I I think there were little little details, like even though the movie never says it, I was thinking about what what is the reason behind Ada's, you know, mutism, her her. what's <laughs> i just lost the word uh selective i guess um mutism you know and i was thinking about like it very clearly makes the point that this started when she was about six and i was thinking about the fact that her father sold her to some man he'd never met and she was married without a ceremony like they're just married on paper so now she's married to this guy and she has you know a relationship before this she had a relationship with her piano teacher that resulted in her child out of wedlock. And then that guy didn't stick around. And so I just Mm -hmm. thought about the fact that this is a woman who probably from around the age of six was not given a voice in her own life and in her own direction. And that is why she chose to stop talking most likely. Mm -hmm. And I just, I, Oh, sorry. No, go on. Well, I was just gonna say, and I just I think watching it with that understanding and like really focusing on what would her experience be, it just it really opened up the film a lot for me in a way that it hadn't been before. Because before I'd just been more focused on the present, like current experience that she's going through, and these these men that are kind of she's sort of in this weird triangle with, um, but they're really it's really not about either of them. It's about her. It's about her daughter. Yeah. There's, there's, I thought there was, there's a rebelliousness to yeah. her silence. Right. And I think that that gets built up throughout the film in that lately said that, that she communicates in ways that are not verbal, but it's right. one of the things that begins to anger the Sam Neill character, right? He like, and, and not just anger him, but make him desperate. He's, and there's, there's one point very late in the film where he actually asks um, George, the Harvey Keitel character, did she speak to you? Mm-hmm. And, and it's this moment where on the one hand, you feel, feel almost sorry for the guy in places <laughs> um, because he's not, you know, he's very controlling. He's very like, he's very typical, I guess, in a lot of ways, men of that period. 
Um, but he's just so desperate. He does not understand this woman. Right. And he is he has this desperation to. And so he's like, well, maybe she talked to you. Did she talk to you? And it's that her silence is something that gets on his nerves and that that affects him in a really deep way. Mm-hmm. Because um, he knows that it is a choice. Yeah. She's the, not the, deaf. Why, she. Yeah. Why won't you speak? Mm-hmm. And and so so that's why I say that there's a rebelliousness to it, that it's like and, and like you say, well, I am forced to be silent about all of the desires of my own life. So I will simply be silent. And that silence, that maybe unwillingness to verbally participate in everything that is around her, that sort of it's like it's passive resistance. Almost, yeah, it's the know? only way that she has any power yeah. in her experience and in her life. Yeah. And and it gives her a great deal of power because it really does other people around her, everyone around her is forced to try to find ways to understand. Like she communicates through her daughter a lot, but but there's also a lot of times where they're they're kind of forced to try to find ways to understand her, not mm-hmm. just like not just what she's verbally communicating through Flora, but just to understand what the heck this woman wants. Yeah, exactly. Well, and her her daughter also also <laughs> lies. Like her yeah. daughter will, and there are a number of times, especially at the beginning, where she will like say something, and it's quite obvious that that's not what her mother said. And her mother is like shaking her head and going like, no, 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 no. But but so so like there is this like it's it's interesting. There there's a language barrier, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and again, it's it's by it is a language barrier by choice because she can hear. And she can speak if she wanted to speak. Um, and but she she doesn't, right? She denies the world that. She denies men that. And um, and it it has, I think, a confluence also with the representations of the Maori characters who um and the and particularly the way that they relate to uh to the Sam Neill character who is constantly saying to them like, you know, oh, here's what I'm going to give you. Here's what I'm going to give you. And then you get the um, the translations of the Maori that they're saying. And they're basically like, stop trying to buy us off with buttons. Like, mm-hmm. stop trying to give us these things just like this is fucking worthless, right? We know that it's worthless. And so there, there's, a, there's an affinity, I think, throughout the film that is expressed between um, the, the colonized woman, as it were, and the colonized people. And yeah. that part of that resistance is this this lack of language and this um, and also just. I, there, there's a moment in the film where the Neil character asks, why won't they sell him this this group, this land? Right. Right. And what he can't yeah. understand is that the reason why they won't give it up is because that's where their um, their ancestors are buried, the the their families are buried. Um, and the, so, so it's a burial ground. They won't give it up because that it's important to them. It's not about whether or not it can be tilled. It's not about whether or not they're going to farm it or anything. It is because this is a sacred space for them. And he right. doesn't understand. Um, and that is something that he cannot process basically. And even, and the George character um, tries to kind of explain it a little bit, but he also doesn't really explain it. He holds things back as well. Um, and so there's this constant repetition throughout the entire film about this lack of communication and this lack of this and a deliberate lack of communication, people being unwilling to translate correctly, right? People being mm-hmm. unwilling to say what is actually going on. 
Um, so like the 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 Baines character doesn't really ever tell anyone, oh, I get I get it, the piano is really important to her. Right. <laughs> um, he never says he uses it to his own ends. Mm-hmm. And and she expresses the fact that the piano is important to her, but never says why. There's never like, again, so there there is this like constant interplay of non-communication and deliberate non-communication. Yeah. Yeah. But but what we as an audience can can see is that for her, the piano is is really her outlet. That is the way that she communicates. Yes, she she speaks through her daughter. Um, she signs with her daughter, but the her communication, her real communication, where you can really feel what she's feeling, is when she sits down to play the piano. And yeah. And that's something that as time goes on, George starts to understand too, because that becomes a language that they share. And um, like once he kind of realizes that he's turned this into a really weird, awkward arrangement between the two of them. And then he, once he gives that up and is just like, no, I'm, I'm giving this piano back to you. That's when you really see that he understands what it means yeah. to, to her in a way that nobody else does and everyone else treats it as a burden so when how much do we want to i mean the movie is 30 years old but i don't know how much we want to get into the ending of it let's let's just talk about the whole film because i think that it's it's important to to have the the conversation about it yeah okay if you have not seen the piano you do not want to be spoiled by the ending although i'm not certain whether this is a film that can be spoiled necessarily no i don't think it ruins the the experience of watching it but also it's 30 years old if you haven't watched it by now lauren um (laughs) (laughs) go watch it go watch it you can rent it for like three bucks (laughs) it's also available to just watch on paramount plus right now so okay yeah um but uh or at my house i have the criterion (laughs) (laughs) come on over guys we're having a party (laughs) go over to karen's house and watch the piano Yeah, so yes. so if you don't want to know the ending, skip ahead uh, to where we will we'll talk about other films. We'll talk about Sense and Sensibility. Yeah. Um, but yes, but yeah. So so yeah. So at the end, you know, you have this moment where um, Alistair realizes that he is never going to connect with this woman, even though, like, I mean, like you said, there is a bit of like he's a bad guy he's not a he's not a sympathetic character at all but there are moments where you do realize you do you understand and maybe this is just because that's how sam neill played it but i feel like this is a guy who did want to have a real marriage he he didn't just want a mail order bride like that would just do whatever he wanted he actually wants to connect with his wife and um in whatever version that you know form that looks like for him and that's not happening and when he when things escalate to the point where uh he's so enraged that he finds out about this affair with george that he cuts off her finger and takes away that you know piano ability for her like she that Mm -hmm. like he's he's cut that off like literally cut it off and but then when he even realizes what's happened he kind of he's he gets to a point where he lets her go um there's you know he's not murdered she doesn't necessarily run away like he he releases her from her obligation of being married to him basically and so she runs off with george and george understands again the importance of the piano and so he is like we're taking it with us you know when she's insistent and, and the people that are taking them are 
are sitting there saying, no, it's going to it's going to turn the boat over. Like it's too it's too dangerous. We can't do it. And George is the one who insists because he understands how important this is to her. And he just wants her to be happy because he really does love her, Mm -hmm. which is something that she's probably never experienced in her life. Well, and she's the one who ultimately decides to let it go. Right. Um, at at the end of that, right? And, and in herself fact, along with it. <laughs> <laughs> and herself along with it, but then not. It's like, yeah, right. it's it's the the ending is really interesting because it is there there is this consistent identification between her and the piano. And like you say at the beginning, it is her mode of expression. It is the way that she experiences release and connection to the world around her. Mm-hmm. Um increasingly it does become a burden it interferes it it you know it indirectly causes uh, reveals her relationship with um george it reveals that she continues to see me reveals her feelings about him um and so it increasingly becomes a burden and turns into this thing that is that that is just dangerous to hang on to um and that she doesn't really need anymore in the same way like she continues to play the piano but she doesn't need that piano right um right. And, and yeah, and so, and there is this interplay between it being connected to her life in some way, and then her finally deciding, making the choice to give it up mm-hmm. um, and, and not to die along with it, right? And, and so it's, it's a really interesting, it's a very complex film. It's a very symbolically complex film. And, and so much of that gets filtered through this, um, this, pre- this, you know, omnipresence of the piano and the importance of it in all of the characters' lives, but especially in hers. Yeah. Uh, I do have one question for you. To me, there's an obvious answer, but um, I've been surprised when I've had conversations with people about the end when they throw the piano overboard and she gets swept along with it. Uh <laughs> <laughs> this is gonna probably sound silly that i'm asking do you think that was intentional that she goes with it yeah yeah she's trying to kill herself thank you yes like, i have she... had so many people who are like well i don't know it's not clear i'm like what are you talking about she looks down at the rope and steps into it yeah she deliberately does that she puts her foot in so that it is yeah. going to take her overboard with it yeah and and, I, I mean, and and drag her down anchor her down and she exactly. ultimately makes the decision that that's not actually what she wants and it's it's that moment of, it's a it's a moment of choice it's a moment of despair but it's also a moment of hope and she sees that she's being literally weighed down by this thing that she has that has been her sole mode of expression and has been the major connection between herself and the man that she's running off with mm-hmm. she decides that no i don't want to die no having the piano is being with the piano, having the piano is not that important. It's an incredibly important moment. I can't believe that anyone would think that, oh, it's an accident. Like, what would that even mean? <laughs> I know. I know. People are like, yeah. And then she accidentally gets swept off with it. And I'm like, no. that was in that. She was trying to kill herself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know how it's, it is not ambiguous because you see her look down, you see her watch the rope going out. And then she steps into it and you don't see a look on her face of like, oh, no, you know, or anything like that. It's very clear to me that this is what she intended to happen. I I don't understand how people are confused by it or think that it's uh, um, ambiguous at all. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's it is an ambiguous. This this falls into some like some of the similar a similar category when we were talking about tar. 
Uh, mm-hmm. We're just like, are you, do you, did you watch the movie or <laughs> no? Maybe I just not. don't understand <laughs> what women want. Women are so <laughs> mysterious. Well, and, and that's the, like at, at a, at a higher, at a higher level. <laughs> When I was watching this film, the first thing I was just like, like, like literally, and I think the the he the Neil character practically asks the question, just like, what does she want? And he's just like, she wants her fucking piano. That's, That's all what she wants. wants. That In is fact, literally she it. said, Hey, bring my piano. And he was <laughs> she like, was oh, willing no. to leave her clothes behind for her <laughs> piano, and yet he still can't figure out what she wants. She like carves piano keys into the table <laughs> to like, you know pretend to play the piano he's like what a strange woman i, I think she might be affected in her brain <laughs> <laughs> and and you know i don't know what hand you could be like oh he's so stupid and everything just like but no but dudes do this all the time men, men are like what is it that women want my fucking piano i want my piano yeah. that's what i want Are but what do you really want just like my piano yeah like we're telling you this is what we want <laughs> all you have this to do is, is- listen and then Holly Hunter is like, this is why I don't speak. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> you obviously are not listening. <laughs> exactly. But then at the end, at the very end, after she has disentangled herself from the piano and let it go physically and metaphorically, um, she's building a life with George. And we get to see this little bit of a coda where she, um, she is you know she has a new piano she's teaching and she's living a happy life with george and she's starting to learn to speak again and i i think it's to me it's pretty clear that it's because in george he doesn't expect that of her he doesn't get mad that she doesn't speak he has found ways to to hear her and that is what brings her around to like okay maybe maybe i can re-engage with the world again yeah, and, and it is, it's all on her own terms. The piano mm-hmm. gets abandoned on her terms. The She learns to speak on her terms. Um, she 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 gets to exist in the world on her terms. Yeah. And once she's able to do that, then, you know, she can, she as you say, she can begin engaging with the world in a different way. Yeah. So any final thoughts on the piano before we move on to a, I guess, somewhat happier film in some ways? <laughs> definitely um just just if you haven't seen the piano give it give it watch it and if you've seen it before and you didn't really like it watch it again like i said this is a film that really rewards repeat viewing mm-hmm. i can imagine that it's a very it's a very slow paced film mm-hmm. but it is very engaging i think yeah beautiful um, score mm-hmm. um really really terrific performances holly hunter and anna paquin both won oscars for their their work here and and really deservedly so so uh, a couple years later actually not that many years later um yeah the uh, emma thompson is nominated and wins best adapted screenplay for sense and sensibility the um and i think this is a film that like most people have seen at least most women have seen um (laughs) so this is a film directed by uh ang lee and is of course an adaptation of jane austen's novel uh, and stars Thompson herself as as Eleanor and Kate Winslet as her younger sister, Marianne, who are the Dashwood sisters. And one of them is sensible and the other one is more like sensibility. <laughs> uh, it's 
I mean, this this is of the three films that we're talking about. This is probably the happiest film, certainly. Uh, yes, by the far. most like kind of bright and bubbly <laughs> and enjoyable. It is very it's funny. It's Jane Austen. <laughs> it's Jane Austen, yeah. But it's very funny and it, it's very affecting. Um, I I've seen it a number of times. I didn't get to watch the entire film uh, this time around. But so let's start. Let's start with you, Karen. What are your your feelings generally about Sense and Sensibility? Okay, well, two things. First of all, um, if you have not seen this one, you can also come up. We'll just do a double feature. You can watch this because I have this one, too. Um, (laughs) But also, I just wanted to mention that, yes, Ang Lee directed it, but he did not get a directing nomination for it. But it was nominated for Best Picture and the producer was Lindsay Doran. So it got a female nominee there, too. Just wanted to mention that. Um, But overall, I love Sense and Sensibility. It's fun. It's it's charming. I love Emma Thompson. Um, Kate Winslet is so good. Like, it's just a, it's such a good cast, but it's such an interesting cast too. We were kind of laughing the other day, you and I about some of the age, <laughs> the ages yeah. of, uh, <laughs> of some of the actors because so at this point, Emma Thompson was 37, I think when this movie came out. And Tom Wilkinson, who has a very, very short role as her father, was only 11 years older than her. And we normally see this happen with with women <laughs> where <laughs> like, oh, sure. Um, uh, Jennifer Coolidge would have been 11 when she birthed what's his face for uh, shotgun wedding. But we don't usually see it the other way. And in this case, we did. So that was funny. Um, and then you've got Alan Rickman, who plays the love interest. Uh, or who is interested in Kate Winslet's character, but he is two years older than Tom Wilkinson. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> well, and I and I think that Colonel Brandon is supposed to be older, like he's supposed he is, to be an older he man, is, yeah, um, and, and you know more experienced and all of that. But one, so I have I honestly have a little bit of difficulty with this film, and it's not really Thompson's script particularly, but it is there. There's a discrepancy that I can never completely resolve whenever I mm-hmm. watched it, and I really couldn't resolve it the first time I saw it because I hadn't read the book at that point. Um, and so like when, when Colonel Brandon is introduced, I'm like, oh, so Eleanor's going to marry him Uh and (laughs) Marion is, is, uh, is going to marry what Edward played by, by Hugh Grant because, and part of it was age, you know, definitely part of it was just like, well, they just make more sense together, but also temperament, I guess it felt Mm -hmm. like there was a deeper it feels like in the film that there is actually a deeper connection going on between Colonel Brandon and Eleanor. Yeah. um, Especially than there is between him and Marianne. And some of that is some of that is, I think definitely, you know, contrary to in a certain way to the point of the film, which is that, you know, you, you kind of, you find your opposite number in in a certain sense, right? Right. Um, You find people who can balance you out that relying on one, relying on sense or on sensibility is not really the best way to live your life. Mm -hmm. Um, And you, you kind of need a little bit of both, but there, there, I felt a little bit of discomfort when it's like, Oh, Colonel Brandon is going to marry Mary. It's just like, but he's like her dad, like, or, you know, he's gonna like, and, you know, maybe that's okay. Maybe that's what she needs, but also I'm a little uncomfortable with it. Whereas he and Eleanor seem to have the stronger connection to each other or understanding of each other. Yeah. Um, That just, and I know that like, you couldn't really rewrite Jane Austen because of, of what happens in that. But at the same time, I kind of would have been interested if they did that. 
I know. I would like to see a different version where like, because I think part of it with Colonel Brandon is the fact that he is so instantly smitten with Marianne. And I think it's pretty clear that for him, she represents, she, she really reminds him of this, this, the girl who he loved, who he uh, was not able to marry um, when he was younger. And he really reminds her of that, that girl. And um, so I think that's why he's so instantly smitten with her. But when she is not feeling the same way and she's all up on Willoughby and he and Eleanor end up, you know, talking a lot more and just getting to know each other better. It, I, I would love to see that version where the two of them kind of, he kind of grows up a little bit in what he's looking for and the two of them kind of get together and, and then Edward can marry Marianne. That's fine. Like he can come back around and and like they can just basically swap. It's fine and it's more age appropriate. <laughs> yeah, they're they're just like and I and I think that some of it is is just the undercurrent of the story itself. I I admit, and I'm going to admit something that is going to get me blacklisted by some people. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of Jane Austen. I think Jane Austen is very limited in her outlook, mm-hmm. um, and with good reason. The, the, these novels were written in the early part of the 19th century, right? But one of the problems that I have with kind of the continued veneration of Jane Austen is that there's this treatment of her as kind of sacrosanct that, you know, you cannot change her. You cannot um, you can't question Jane Austen at some level. And one of the problems with Sense and Sensibility in particular, I don't think it's her strongest novel necessarily. And one of the problems with it is is this discrepancy, this like, oh, you know, Marianne really needs a daddy. Uh, Eleanor really needs someone to take care of. And that's kind of, and that's the outcome to it. And it feels maybe it makes sense in terms of the early part of the 19th century, but it doesn't work in, you know, the 1990s. That being said, I think that it's a fantastic script in itself. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's very entertaining. I think that Emma Thompson definitely deserved the Oscar for it and everything. But it's it's just one of those stories that makes me a little bit uncomfortable every time I think about it. Yeah. Um no, I totally get that. And I think that I think that to your point about Jane Austen in general, I really enjoy her work because I look at it as like the fun, romantic, you know, like they're there's they're silly books. They're not she wasn't intending them to be analyzed and and scrutinized in the 21st century you know like she was writing basically pulp fiction for the you know the regency era and um and like the romance novels the romance exactly (laughs) i mean this is like this is like if we were trying to give i don't know joyce carol oates a whole lot of um you like importance and stuff or whoever you know from from now it's like there's lots of people that are just writing just fun books that aren't 200 years from now aren't gonna be worthy of that scrutiny or or need to be celebrated the way that we look at Jane Austen I completely agree with you on that I still have fun with her books but I'm looking at them in the spirit with which they were written not trying to imbue them with all this like modern day importance I guess so yeah, maybe no, we're I, both going to get canceled. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I agree with that, and and I think that, and she is very important. And like I say, I think the sense of sensibility as as a as a novel is one of her weaker books. 
um, because there's there's more of a stringent kind of divide. It's just like, OK, well, we're going to put Colonel Brandon with Marianne and and um, Edward with uh, Eleanor. And that's how it's all going to come out. Right. Whereas yeah, like, I think the relationships. Later, oh, sorry. Oh, no, I was, I was just going to say some of some of her later books and some of her other books are address these address those kinds of relationships with greater complexity is is my point. Yeah, I, I feel like the relationships in Sense and Sensibility feel more um, uh, contrived mm. and less um, organic than they do in some of her other books. Uh, one of the interesting things I think about this film about the piano, which are two very, very different films, right, very, yeah. is this fact that both of them take place in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And in fact, all three films that we're talking about take place and you know and the third film is is different um in a lot of ways but they all take place in a, in a sort of period element right yeah and and particularly within societies where women are very repressed are very controlled have have to be concerned about things like literal starvation if they are not able to find a husband um mm-hmm. if they are not able to be taken care of by a man and and both the piano and sense of sensibility give you a happy ending, right? And and it feels even with all of the caveats that I have about sense of sensibility, it feels okay. It doesn't feel like this is a bad thing, right? Right. Yeah. Um, that but there is still that sensation of um, of the there being very limited scope for women. And it's interesting that these are films that are being that are the ones that are being awarded at the Academy Awards mm-hmm. um, and are getting all of this attention. And that's not true, obviously, across the board in terms of the films that have been, that have won Academy Awards. But it's interesting that that women writing and talking about period pieces and times in history where women have been very repressed and controlled by their society are the places where women are getting the most attention. Um, particularly in the 1990s and now into into the aughts and into the 20s yeah yeah um i was just looking back at the list of recent nominees and it's like all the women that have been nominated for screenplays either i mean you have like coda is a really you know hopeful optimistic movie about a girl kind of a coming of age story but um a lot of these and Greta Gerwig for Little Women is sort of that too but um but uh so many of these it's like either the stories are about men or they are about women in um particularly challenging circumstances because of the fact that they're women not just that their lives are hard you know yeah and you you even look something even look at something like uh, Juno, which mm-hmm. is uh, the next the next film written by a woman to 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 win an Academy Award, um, which is you know very contemporary. Right. Uh, it it isn't a period piece, as it were, although it almost plays like one now. Yeah. Um, but it's it's again it's about um, it's about a female character who is in a very difficult position. Mm-hmm. Um, and that she is having to navigate and, 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 you know, and with help with a lot more support than you, than you would get in the 19th century, certainly. Right. But, but yeah, there, there is the sense that like women's stories have to be difficult. They have to be, they have to take place in times and in positions where women's are suffering are made to suffer are are made to be controlled. And even in something like sense and sensibility, where you know if these girls don't get married they might starve 
right? Mm -hmm. That's one of the things that is underlying a lot of Jane Austen's stuff is that if they don't get married off, they might not be able to survive quite literally. They might be impoverished. Yeah, because so many of her stories rely on that um, the inheritance rights or the inheritance laws at the time where like the property would transfer to whatever closest male heir there is even if the you know even if a man doesn't have any sons and only has daughters his daughters don't inherit his wife doesn't inherit it all goes to like in some sometimes it's a distant cousin and um and mo- I, i'm trying to think of which of her uh which of her stories does not uh incorporate <laughs> none, that <laughs> none, none of them really no because yeah. because a lot of it a lot of it is very much about um about the 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 reality of being particularly a middle class woman in that period mm-hmm. um is that you don't have money that is your own you don't have property that is your own right. um and and without a marriage to someone anybody pretty much um and and without your reputation all of those things you you again you might die you might starve mm-hmm. to death <laughs> yeah well and that's the thing and it's like your existence relies on the uh the generosity of that that uh in the what's the word the heir and mm-hmm. their their spouse like in the case of sense and sensibility uh it goes to um oh they have don't they no they don't have a brother who is i'm trying to think uh it's his it's their uncle right yes i think so and then I think that's his wife right. is just kind of like eh, you're out <laughs> <laughs> so I, i'm trying no that doesn't seem i don't remember anyway anyway they get kind of kicked out of their house because of, yeah. of who inherited it and so then they have to go then they go stay on on their uncle's property that's what it is so yeah that sounds right cottage so yeah and that's the thing it's like it's not just that they have to marry well they also have to hope that whoever inherits their family home doesn't suck (laughs) (laughs) and in this case she does uh fanny Uh, you never trust anyone named fanny (laughs) that's right harriet Harriet walter harriet walter is great i love her so much yeah (laughs) but she has a hot brother so it's fine well but but so that that's that's the thing this whole this whole idea about the female dependence on men and the dangers that women face if they walk away from that if they escape yeah. from that yeah and i think that this is a very good segue into our our third film which has not yet won an academy award i really hope that it does but I you sure know hope so well we'll see i i hope that i really hope that it does because it deserves it um the film women talking directed and written by uh sarah polly and this is based on a, a book by miriam toes um which is called, based on a true story also called woman talking yeah which is based on a true story um and i think that we should preface this with we might wind up discussing spoilers we might wind up discussing how this all ends i'm not certain but um but so i just want to preface that and to to warn people that if you don't want to know some of the ins and outs of what happens in this film, um, you know, jump over it. Please go watch the film because this, I think this is one of the most important films that has come out this, this past year. Um, It is, it is very well done. It is very well acted. It is incredible 
incredibly intelligent. It's difficult to watch. Uh, I had to pause it multiple times because I was getting so upset. <laughs> um, but it, it is a really fantastically well done film. And it is also only an hour and 45 minutes. And I thanked God for that. Because when I started, I was like, please don't let this be one of those like two and a half hour suffering fests. <laughs> and it's not, it isn't. And in fact, it's not, you know, exclusively focused on suffering at all, but it, it can be a, a difficult film to watch. Yeah. Um, so, but I think, like I said, I think that's just a good segue. So this is a film about a Mennonite colony um, in which basically the women have discovered that the men have been drugging them and breaking into their houses and raping them. And uh, the men who've been accused of this have been arrested and all of the other men of the colony have gone to bail them out. And the women settle down and say, all right, we have to talk about what we're going to do uh, and and how we are going to deal with this. And their their choices are they can do nothing, they can leave, or they can choose to stay and fight back. And so most of the film involves this group of women having this conversation. Um, yeah. And this group was elected basically by the women in the colony to as kind of matriarchs to make the decision for everyone. Yeah, to, to come to the decision and to, and they have, uh, they've what, 24 hours in, in which to do it because the men, because the men might come back and at which point they will, their choices will be severely limited. Yeah. Um, it is, so it's a, it's a very well-paced film, first of all, but so much of this is is really about these women whose entire lives are controlled by and dependent on the men in their world and and they're they have some fantastic conversations one of my favorite lines is when they're talking about of the possibility of telling the men to leave mm -hmm. um and because the as they point out it's just like why should we be the ones to to leave when the problem is not us the problem is them yeah um and and the and one of the women says you know um isn't it odd that the one thing we would ever ask of the men is for them to leave? Mm -hmm. And yeah. it is, it's, this is a fantastic film because of course it's about this very specific society um, and the specific occurrence in the specific society, but Polly expands it and makes certain that we understand very clearly that this is not just about Mennonite women in a, in one colony. This is about women. And this is about the female experience in the world. And, and these questions are just like, why should we be the ones to say um, we're going to walk away from this? Why should we be the ones to abandon our homes? You know, they should, it's their fault. We should fight back against them. Um, and, and I particularly like the, and he's been a kind of a controversial character, but I particularly like the Ben Wishaw character. Oh, I love him. Yeah. Um, as this kind of sole male representative, right. Who is not, who's a, a man whose family left and then he has come back and he's become a school teacher in this colony and is kind of trying to, you know, it's implied that he's trying to educate the boys in a slightly better way. Um, but his role is basically as the only person who can write and he's recording everything that the women are talking about. Um, and he's pretty much the only trustworthy male in the entire group. <laughs> um, but he, he also has to prove that pretty consistently throughout the film that he is actually trustworthy. 
and that this is not something that is like that he's going to use against them and that he's going to actually shape proceedings. And so he kind of forms this really interesting kind of male ally figure who is also limited in his own way. So I, I don't want to talk too much about this because I have many feelings. I have so many feelings. What are your feelings here? And you actually wrote the review that is on our website. I did. Yeah. I saw this actually back in uh, October when I went to the Middleburg Film Festival. And it was the last film I saw before I headed to the airport and got on a plane. And it really stayed with me. And um, this it's such a powerful film because for, for several reasons um, it, it delivers exactly what it promises in the title. It is a movie about women talking. And um, I, I just think that the conversations that happen, I mean, this could have been um, it wouldn't have been because it's Sarah Polly and this amazing cast of actresses, but this could have been a story that was just really dry, but the, the dialogue is so rich and so thoughtful and so thought provoking. There are moments where it's funny. Like you're actually laughing at things in mm. the middle of this really serious conversation, which is something that's so true to women. Like, I mean, I'll be in the middle of a really serious conversation with a friend and we just like you instinctively know when you just need to lighten the mood a little bit. And then you just say something just kind of silly. Everyone laughs. And then you go back to the serious, you know, discussion that you're having. And I think that that Polly's script does that really beautifully a number of times. And it's delivered so well by by these women who all kind of have different approaches to the situation. You know, like you've got Claire Foy just wants, she just wants to kick some ass. She just is like done, <laughs> you know? And Jesse Buckley's like, well, but yeah, I, I I don't disagree with that. But also, you know, it's like, so it's mm-hmm. this, this like back and forth, which is what makes it so compelling. And, and just watching, watching these women all interact with each other. And then occasionally remind you that August is over there writing everything down and like occasionally trying to get his, his input, like asking him to, to contribute, you know, there's a beautiful scene um, where they ask him, they're, they're trying to decide, well, if we're going to go and we want to take our children with them, kind of what's the cutoff age for the boys mm-hmm. and can these boys, are these boys salvageable? Basically, can they be saved? Can they become better men? And the monologue that he delivers is just, yeah. it's beautiful. And, um, I just, I think this is such, such a fascinatingly well done film because of the fact that it's a single location. This is something we were talking about before. I think, uh, a couple weeks ago, movies that, that can feel like they're, oh yeah. We were talking about last week with cat on a hot tin roof where it's like, uh-huh. it, it, you know, there's, there's plays and then there's movies. And sometimes, you know, a really good single location film uh, can really make good use of that space and not feel like it just belongs on a stage. And this wasn't a play, but there are ways I could see this being a really good play, but also Sarah Polly directs it in a way that she makes great use of the space really takes advantage mm-hmm. of this, this barn and like all the room that is in that barn and the way that it sometimes feels constricting. And she just does such a good job with playing with the light and, and, and everything and like what's happening outside to really make this feel like a big movie, even though most of it is set in one very specific small space. 
Yeah, you're you're absolutely actually in watching the film, I was like, was this originally a play? Um, <laughs> yeah. Was this originally written as a play? Because because most of the film, not all of it, but most of it takes place in the in the single like hayloft, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and and is is this conversation one of the things uh, to to refer to the the discrepancy between the Jesse Buckley character and the um, uh, Claire Foy character? Yeah. And they're very similar, actually, yeah. in temperament and in attitude and everything, but they have different perspectives on things. But one of the things I really liked about that is that throughout the film, you kind of, the film establishes like, okay, here are these kind of, here are these characters, here are these types, here's what they represent. And then shows why they think the way they do. You, it, it gets revealed progressively why Claire Foy wants to just murder people. Yeah. Um, yeah. And And you're like, I okay, let's murder some dudes. Like, yeah, absolutely. Um, why the Jesse Buckley character is on the one hand so angry and and also so resistant to actually leaving, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 that's true, I think, for each of the female characters. I don't think it's just them. We actually see more and more of why they're responding the way that they are and their arguments, and all of their arguments are good. So this whole idea of like, if we leave, are we running away? Are we just fleeing? Yeah. And there's a whole conversation that goes on between there's a difference between fleeing and leaving. Right. And well, I also, it's oh, fascinating. It's it's really brilliantly done. Yeah. I also love how the conversation when they're talking about staying and fighting and they have to first to, to agree on, well, what are we fighting for if we stay and fight? And like, is this something that we want to physically fight for? You know, and how do we do that? Because the men will outpower, overpower us, you know? So it's like these real practical conversations of, of like the actual, like what they have to decide, but there's so many layers there of what, what they're saying versus what they're actually talking about. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's just, it's such a rich, vibrant script. It's honestly, it's one of the best scripts I've seen in a couple of years it's uh, that's why i'm gonna be so disappointed if it does not win um sarah Polly absolutely deserves the oscar for this Uh, it's just it's incredible and but on top of that i think too just looking at the way that it's filmed and there are certain things that like you see the the result of violence against women you never actually Mm -hmm. see the violence being committed you never see the only man's face that you see is is august um, yeah, well, and and one other character, Melvin, Melvin, um, right? The, the which, trans, transgender transgender yeah. man, which is and and Melvin is a fascinating character, I think. Um, and I I hadn't really heard much about him as uh, in in the the way that people were talking because um, it's it's interesting because it, the film makes very clear that Melvin is not transgender because he was raped, right? Um, but that his silence is a result of. The rape basically he yes. denies other men um the women anybody his speech mm-hmm. and and only talks to it's implied that he only talks to the the younger children and is kind of the guardian of the younger children so it's an interesting way of, of also including a transgender character and kind of expanding definitions of who is who is who is male who is female right mm-hmm. and and what that actually means and there's a wonderful moment where um uh, the the women finally begin addressing him as Melvin instead of as Nettie, which was his his female name. Right. And and I like the fact that the film actually built on that. And I, in some ways, I wish that we could have seen more of him. 
Um, and I think that it would have been hard to incorporate that given the length of the film and, and the subject matter. But it was good to actually have that extra element um, as a part of the conversation. That and and also to show that he is very accepted by the women, and right. very much a part of the society and a part of the the people who have been violated and oppressed by the situation. That's that's just it. And and when I say that uh, August is the only man's face that we see, I I was not trying to exclude Melvin from that. It's just that what um what i was about to say was um because i was actually gonna bring it around to melvin too i'm glad oh, you sorry. did no 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 no. that's okay sorry, i'm glad you did <laughs> oh it's fine um because that's an important point and i i don't want to sound like i'm dismissing that character because i'm definitely not but, but august i mean melvin is definitely accepted by the women very much not accepted as a man by this by this uh, group by the men in that yep. community and but august is one that he his family had been expelled because of his mom and then he comes back and so he has this insight into the the male like psyche of that group and he understands and he is allowed to interact with the men in a way that he so so that he's the only one that has that in i guess and so he's the only yeah. one that's kind of allowed in and whereas i mean the only other men that we see are melvin who's out with the kids who realistically in a real mennonite community probably would have been kicked out if not beaten to mm -hmm. death um because it's just horrible and they would not accept a trans person in their in their community um and then you see from a distance you see like uh, Marike's husband um you see the census guy Cross, yeah yeah so you see that census person which is how you know that uh this is not a period movie it's actually set in modern day because there's a car <laughs> um and things like that but it's like everybody's from a distance um well yeah it, exactly and I think that it also reminds us that the world that the women are are going out towards and I, I guess spo spoiler here, they decide to leave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and there's there's a there are there's like issues that are also involved with that. But the the road the the world that the women are going out towards is not a perfect world. And right. they know that, I think. And I think that it's pretty clear. So like, and in fact, part of the conversation is how will we take care of ourselves? How will we survive, you know, in this world that is outside of everything that we've known? Um, how will we travel? How will we find a place to live? All of those things, the, the actual logistics of the choice that they're making. Mm -hmm. um, but I think this, the census man is, is a good little indication that this is not the perfect world that they're going out to because he meets these two girls. And at one point he says to them like, oh, well, do you have boyfriends? Mm -hmm. and, and he's just like, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> these are like two you know, whatever, 14 year old girls, 13 year old girls, you know, and yeah. they're and he's talking to them like that. And and he also knows what's going on because he's the one that tells them that the that one of the men is coming back. Yeah. And and so so there is still like this element of like the world is dangerous, but also the way that I guess I think that their final choice is made and the way that they finally come together is that part of what will enable them to survive is each other. Yeah. And the protection that they have as a community of women in making there's, this choice. 
There's a beautiful line that Ona says, which is the character played by Rooney Mara. She says, hope for the unknown is good. It is better than hatred of the familiar. So it's better to hope for something, even if you don't know. And even if things end up bad, you have that hope, which is Mm -hmm. so much better than just being absolutely miserable and hating where you are. Uh, And I, I think that this, this film makes it so clear that this is a, this is a universal experience. And I think that one of the reasons why I had difficulty watching it, I needed to pause it a couple of times was because so much of the conversation is exactly the conversations that we've had every day as women, right. Mm -hmm. And as women having to exist in this world and that, that combination of like, you know, I want to, I want to cut a bitch, right? I want to kill someone <laughs> um, to like, I don't actually want to kill anybody. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and, but how, how, why am I not allowed to exist in this world without fear? Yeah. And, and what will it take for me to be able to exist without fear? And that's, that's difficult. And it's some, but it's a conversation that actually needs to be had. It's also a conversation that needs to be had in, in something like this film from women by women. Mm-hmm. um that you know and that also includes ben wishaw is not allowed to interrupt i right. did like there's a great moment where like he tries to interject and he <laughs> tries to to explain something or say something and like kind of guide the conversation and he gets shouted down like they're just like oh, shut yeah. the fuck up like <laughs> you do not get to talk mm-hmm. um and he, and lo and behold he apologized <laughs> he says you're right you're right I'm sorry for trying to guide the conversation. <laughs> and it's like, so yes, well, once again, all men are trash, except for maybe that one guy. <laughs> exactly. So any final thoughts on women talking and uh, and the fact that it's been nominated, maybe might possibly hopefully win. <laughs> no. Oh man, I sure hope so. It only got nominated for two Oscars. Uh Best urge or best adapted screenplay and best picture. How it did not get in for <laughs> costume, I don't know. Uh, Kita Alfred's costumes are gorgeous. I could see a- how none of the women got nominated because I think they kind of all canceled each other out. Um, because it's such an amazing cast. And I think that we yeah. definitely need to talk about the fact that I mean, this cast is incredible. Rooney Mara, Claire Foy, Jesse Buckley, Francis McDormand, who actually isn't in it much, but she's pretty powerful when she is. Judith Ivy is great. Sheila McCarthy has some of the best, like, um, just moments of, like, when she wants to talk about Ruth and Cheryl. <laughs> I love her well, so much. And, you know, you you say something about humor, right? And I like the fact that, like, you know, Ruth and Cheryl become these images, right? Just like, I like to talk about Ruth and Cheryl. But when it turned out, when Klaus was going to take oh. Ruth and Cheryl, I was like, okay, now we kill him. This is when mm-hmm. we kill him. He it's dies. okay. Everything yeah. we're now he dies. Like that's yep. it. Don't you dare let him take Ruth and Gerald. Mm-hmm. Um, um, actually, there is one other thing that I want to say, yeah. but this is very spoilery. So anybody who hasn't skipped forward yet, but doesn't want the very end spoiled, um, just skip ahead another couple minutes. Um, but for me, I I cannot think of another moment in a movie in 2022 that moved me quite as much and and even just thinking about it now like i've got i've literally got tears in my eyes just (laughs) thinking about it um but the moment when all these wagons and horses and everything are lined up and everybody's ready to go and the moment that that first wheel starts to turn Mm -hmm. 
it just yeah. <laughs> I'm seriously crying thinking about it because <laughs> it's just such a powerful image of it these is. women who have been repressed their entire lives who are taking their power and they're they're moving forward and they're doing something terrifying but they're taking that that step on that yeah. journey and just the the image of that wheel turning is just so powerful to me it it really is it's the the ending is deeply moving and it it, it was one of those actually partway through the film I was like I'm worried about how this film is going to end like I'm a, I'm actually a little concerned about this but it's so powerful and so triumphant into this world that like you say isn't necessarily safe and it, it, you don't know what the world is going to bring for them but there is this sense of triumph and of hope of being like we're going to move forward and and again it's that community of women it's we're going yeah. to do it together Right. Yep. We are all going to go. We're going to take our children. We're going to take our things. We are going to. And there there is a little bit of uh, schadenfreude in there because I keep on imagining the men coming back <laughs> and realizing that er, not only their, the women, but their children are, mm -hmm. are gone. Right. Yeah. Have left and have essentially declared that they're independent from from this world. Yeah. And that power is it's very intense and it's frightening in, the, in a certain sense but at the same time it's like this is good this is you know that movement forward and the fact that these women are there together mm -hmm. um yeah you're absolutely right it's it's an incredibly powerful film it's a film that i i on the one hand i'm like i should want to watch it again but i also really don't want to watch <laughs> it again but it is a great example of a film that that like makes you really feel the power of cinema i think yeah. And I will also say it's another movie. Image. Oh, sorry. No, go on. Well, I was going to say it's another movie that really does reward repeat viewings too. I would imagine that it does knowing because like so much of the tension for me, like I say, in watching the film was like, I don't know what's going to happen. And I want it to be okay. <laughs> like I want everything yeah. to be okay. Let it be okay. There's, so there's definitely that. So there's a little bit of distraction, I think probably going on there. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas if you know kind of the outcome and, and how it's all going to proceed, you can like, okay, I can relax a little bit and actually pay attention to some of the things that they're saying. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's true. So I think that that is probably going to close us out for this week. Um, I think so. I mean, three really great films that we talked about. Um, they say The Piano is available on Paramount+. Plus. Women Talking is still in theaters in various places and is also available to, I think it's still just available to purchase, but honestly, it's $20 that's that's worth it. Yeah. It's not available to rent? I thought it was. I don't think it's available. It wasn't when I watched it last week. Oh. Uh, but it, that might have changed by now. I think that it is going to be on Amazon at some point so you should just like keep an eye out for that um but it should be available to rent fairly soon yeah and uh, and sense of sensibility is available to rent and um and all of them are, are very much worth worth your time if you haven't seen them and worth your time if you would like to see them again definitely come um, on over and watch them at my house <laughs> or go to karen's house yeah <laughs> <laughs> So as always, we want to thank our lovely patrons uh, who include Ali, Brian, Connor, Estefania, Heather, James, Kathleen, Cariata, Matt, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, Pow, and Will. Um, and not Will, sorry. Bye, Will. <laughs> <laughs> Apologize for that. Um, 
we are like primarily supported by Patreon. And so please, if you like want to support the podcast, uh, go to patreon.com slash citizen dame and you will get some fun pins and stickers and, uh, and also available episodes, bonus episodes. We should have a bonus episode coming up sometime this March. So keep an eye out for that. We'll also be posting polls about that. And of course, you can also go to our website, uh, citizendamepod.com. And there's even a donate button on our website if you want to just throw us a couple of dollars. And we have many reviews, editorials. I should be having some new reviews coming up fairly soon. And Karen has a whole bunch of stuff from Sundance and also her uh, original review of Women Talking. So definitely check that out. Um, we do still have our Zazzle store, zazzle.com slash citizendamepod and our Ko-Fi account, co-fi.com slash citizendame. You can also get in touch with us via email. We are citizendamepod at gmail.com. And we are on many, many different socials. We are on Twitter and Instagram at citizendamepod. Um, we are on Mastodon at citizendamepod and, and Letterbox at citizendame, where you can also find links to all of our articles and things like that, because we now have a Letterboxed HQ. Oh, that was that was an entire breath. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm impressed. Uh, of course, you can get in touch with us individually. Uh, Karen, where are you? I am the, on the socials at Karen M. Peterson. And I am also on the socials at LH Business. Thank you so much for listening to us. And we will talk to you later. Bye. What if the men who are in prison are not guilty? Mother. Oh, child. Why are you asking? shush. We caught one of them. Ah! I saw him. But only one. Yes, only one. But he named the others. But what if he was lying? We must consider this. No. No, that is not our responsibility because we aren't in charge of whether or not they are punished. We know that we've been attacked by men, not by ghosts or Satan, as we were led to believe for so long. We know that we've not imagined these attacks, that we were made unconscious with cow tranquilizer. We know that we are bruised and infected and pregnant and terrified and insane and some of us are dead we know that we must protect our children regardless of who is guilty